Now, brothers and sisters, I've never been a fan of letter writing. When I was young, there was something called having a pen pal. Can anyone remember that? I never had one of those. I wasn't really a fan of letter writing. But um, probably the most important letter I did ever write was about three years ago when I wrote to my dad. And if you don't know the story about me and my dad, you can ask me afterwards. But I hadn't actually seen him or spoken to him for about 20 years. And uh, you can imagine that when I wrote a letter to him, I had a lot to say, a lot to write down. I had to share a lot of my life with my dad, share with him that I'd got saved, that I got married, that I was a doctor. And, you know, when you write a letter like that, you get to the end of it, and you have to ask yourself the question, how am I going to end this? Am I going to end it with a long conclusion? Am I going to just stop it abruptly? Or am I going to kind of concisely bring it to an end? And I think that's what I did the latter, just concisely close it. Now, I bring this up because Paul, when we get to this part of 2 Corinthians, he's facing that same kind of question. How does he end this letter? Because in the previous 13 and a half chapters, he has written or dictated a lot of things. He's spoken about doctrine. In chapter 3, he spoke about the doctrine of the new covenant. In chapter 5, he spoke about the doctrine of the cross. He's also been very personal in this letter. Uh, He's been defending his ministry, his apostleship, so that the guys there in Corinth could turn away from the false teachers and come back underneath his ministry to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. We also know that this letter was the last written communication that Paul had with Corinth. There's debate about how many letters he wrote to them. Was it three? Was it five? We don't know really. But what's absolutely clear was this was the last letter that he wrote. And we also know that this letter was fruitful. Uh, In AD 95, there was a man called Clement who wrote an epistle, and he wrote about the Corinthian church. So the Corinthian church went on after this letter. It had its problems, but it was was still fruitful. So Paul's written this, this last communication, this fruitful letter, and the question is, how does he end it? Well, that's what the subject of our message is today. We're going to be looking at the concluding remarks of Paul to the Corinthians. And so in verse 7 to 9, we're going to see Paul's concluding remarks about the content of this letter. In verse 10, we're going to see his concluding remarks about the reason he wrote it. And then in verse 11 to 14, we're going to see his concluding remarks about the hope that he has for them in the future. Now, some of you might be sitting there and thinking, well, Adam, what on earth can we get from a conclusion to one of the epistles in the New Testament. Many Christians, they treat the beginning of the epistles and the end of epistles a bit like how men greet and say goodbye to each other when they go out for a drink. You know what I'm talking about, men. You go and see one of your mates, and there's a quick handshake to say hello and a quick handshake to say goodbye. Many Christians just kind of breeze past the beginning of these epistles and the endings, and they forget 
the fact that there's a lot of good doctrine at the end of Paul's letters, particularly in his conclusions. We have to remember what he said to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, 16 to 17, when he said, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. And I think you'll see that reality today as we go through these verses. Now, our first section is in verse 7 to 9. And in this section, Paul makes three very sort of clear statements about what he's written in this letter to Corinthians. He makes his first statement in verse 7 where he says, Now I pray to God that you do no evil, not that we should appear approved, but that you should do what is honourable, though we may seem disqualified. And so in this verse, what Paul's saying is he was praying for the Corinthian believers that they wouldn't do the evil thing, but that they would do the honourable thing. He's praying that they do the correct thing, not the wrong thing. And in the context of this letter, what he's speaking about here is that he wants them to turn from their sin. He wants them to turn from the influence of the false teachers in that fellowship. Uh, Notice he says there, not that we should appear approved, though we may seem disqualified. And he's saying that there because what Paul is wanting to say to the Corinthians is, is he's wanting to say, look, guys, I know that we as a ministry team We appear disqualified to you through the teaching of the false teachers. But what I want you to do is I don't want you to turn from them just so that we should appear approved. I want you to turn from these false teachers so that you can have a restored relationship with Jesus Christ. So to summarize what he's saying, he's saying do the right thing for the right reasons. His second statement is in verse 8, where he says, For we can do nothing against the truth, but for the truth. And what he's saying there is he's saying, Look, I've, I've spoken in this letter about my ministry, about my apostleship, and I know that I've done nothing wrong against the truth. And the truth there is Jesus. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And Paul knew clearly that he'd done nothing wrong against Jesus, that he could do nothing wrong against Jesus because the Spirit of Christ was in him bringing forth the ministry. And so to summarize his second statement, it would be this. He says, I have a clear conscience that I've done nothing wrong. And then his third statement, lastly, is in verse 9, where he says, For we are glad when we are weak, and you are strong. And this also we pray, that you may be made complete. And in this verse, what he's speaking about is the reality that he was weak physically. A lot of the the time he had many problems, but through that weakness, it was for their benefit. It was for their strength. And his prayer, and his ministry team's prayer, was that through that weakness, these Corinthian believers would be made complete, or they would be made mature. So to summarize that third statement, it would be, we will gladly be weak for your strength and your maturity. So they're the three statements. Do the right thing for the right reasons. I'm convinced in my own conscience I've done nothing wrong. And we will gladly be weak for your strength 
and your maturity. Now, what does that sound like? That sounds like the whole teaching of 2 Corinthians in three verses. Maybe if he just gave that at the beginning, we wouldn't have had to spend the last four or five months on it. But this is a concise summary of what he said in the whole last 13 and a half chapters. It's true, isn't it? Paul has been calling these people to repent over and over again in these chapters. He's over and over again defended his ministry and his apostleship and shown that he's done nothing wrong. And over and over again, he's shown that actually having weakness as a Christian is not a bad thing. That actually you see the strength of the Lord come forth in that, and it can actually benefit other people. Now, why is Paul doing this in this first section? Well, he's doing it because he's worried that they're going to forget everything he's wrote in the last 13 and a half chapters. I mean, think about it. When you write a conclusion to a letter or you write a conclusion in one of your exam papers, uh, you do that because you are worried that the person reading it is going to forget what you've written. Particularly in your exams, when you write that conclusion, you want to make sure you've got every single point there so that you get the full mark. And so Paul here is wanting to bring this summary of what he's taught so that these guys do not forget. Paul knew that sinful human beings can forget and they can drift away from what they should concentrate on. He knew that sinful human beings tend to think about the things that they shouldn't do and tend to drift away and forget the things that they should remember. This principle of sinful human beings drifting away is exemplified for us in two places in the Old Testament. In Isaiah 53, verse 6a, it says, All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the imagery in that verse is that God is the shepherd, that the human race are the flock, and that because of sin, the flock just goes off in its own direction, away from God. Drifting away, forgetting the Lord. And then in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 11 to 17, God speaks about this with the people of Israel. He says, Beware that you do not forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments, his judgments, and his statutes, which I command you today, lest when you have eaten and are full and have built beautiful houses and dwell in them, and when your herds and your flocks multiply and your silver and your gold are multiplied, and all that you have is multiplied when your heart is lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage who led you through that great and terrible wilderness in which were fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty land where there was no water who brought water for you out of the flinty rock who fed you in the wilderness with manna which your fathers did not know that he might humble you and that he might test you to do you good in the end. Then you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gained me this wealth. God was very clear here to the nation of Israel. When you forget my words, when you don't do what I tell you to do, when you concentrate on your own sinful nature, 
you will begin to drift away from me and forget me. You will begin to say that you've done everything that I have provided for you. This is what happens, brothers and sisters, when sinful people turn from the word of God and they invest in their own sinful nature. And in the Old Testament, Israel did this time and time and time again. And God said prophet after prophet after prophet to say, repent, turn back to God, but they didn't. And eventually they went off into captivity. Now the question is, is this principle of sin leading us astray the same for us as born-again believers? Can the same thing happen to us? Well, I would say yes, it can. It can because one of the things we have to remember as born-again believers is even though we have the nature of God within us, we also have our old sinful nature there as well. And that old sinful nature will not go away until we see Jesus face to face and we're given our new bodies. And because of that, if we choose to neglect the word of God and choose to listen to the flesh, listen to the devil, listen to the world, we can drift away from God. We can forget him. We can have a cold relationship with him. Now, before I go on, I must just say that even though I'm saying this, I have a very strong conviction that once you're born again, you are always born again. I have a strong conviction that once you're born again, God will get you to heaven. He will present you before him holy and blameless. But even though I say that, I do have a strong conviction as well that sin has terrible effects on our lives as born-again believers. That if we choose to invest in our sinful nature and in things that we shouldn't do, it will quench the spirit, it will grieve the spirit, it will slow down what God wants to do in our lives, it will make our fellowship with him less close and we will have a cold relationship with him. Those two truths we have to hold in equal. That once we're born again, yes, we're always born again, but sin definitely has a terrible effect on our lives if we choose to invest in it. Now, of course, Paul, his heart for the Corinthian believers was that this did not happen to them. He wanted them to have a faith that was stable, that was steadfast. He wanted them to be rooted and grounded in Jesus Christ and be built up in him and established in the faith. That's what Paul's heart was for them. He wanted to preach Christ to them. He wanted to teach them and warn them in wisdom so that he could present every single one of them mature in Jesus Christ. And listen, this is the same heart that the Spirit has for us as well today. God knows, listen, brothers and sisters, he knows how weak we are. He knows that we are but flesh before him. He knows that we can be drawn away from, the, from him by the things that are not good. And because of that, he is placed within the church, pastors and teachers, to teach and preach the word of God to the people of God so that they don't forget so that they don't drift away. This is why your pastors and teachers in this church 
have the conviction to teach the Word of God verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book, until Jesus comes back. So that the people of God in this church do not forget the whole counsel of God. This is why John and myself encourage you to go along to a home group. If you're part of Servants Church, we would say go along to a home group, if you can, so that you can have the Word of God implanted into your heart in the week, just, not just on Sunday. This is why we encourage you to read your Bible every day so that the Word of God goes into your heart and you don't forget it. So let me ask you a question, brothers and sisters. Did you answer no to any of those questions? If you did, I want you to think about that. Because you're not immune from being led astray from God. None of us in here are immune to it. No matter how spiritually mature we are, we can be led astray from the Lord. And the thing that keeps us from that is this word. So do you come to church ready to receive the word of God? The very, the very words of the creator of the universe? Or does it go in one ear and come out the other? Do you go along to a home group on Wednesday, having received from the Lord and then to give to your brothers and sisters. God wants us, brothers and sisters, to have a very close relationship with him. He does not want us to drift away. So let us, let us not forget the basic truths of the word. Let us live in the word day in and day out. So he goes on in verse 10 to bring his second concluding remark to the Corinthians. And it reads there, therefore, I write these things being absent, lest being present, I should use sharpness, according to the authority which the Lord has given me for edification and not for destruction. Now, in this verse, Paul is bringing two concluding remarks about why he wrote this letter. The first is in the first half, where he talks about the fact that he wrote these things being absent, less being present, I should use sharpness. Now, this brings out a conflict that was in Paul in and around the time he was just about to write 2 Corinthians. You remember, he wrote this severe letter to the Corinthian church, rebuking them harshly, and he wanted to go there, and he wanted to find out how they responded to it. And so he started to travel towards Corinth, he got held up in Macedonia, and he sent Titus uh, ahead of him. Titus came back and reported what was going on. And Paul then wrote 2 Corinthians. But he didn't choose to go himself personally because, listen, he did not want to use sharpness. You see that word there, sharpness, in verse 10? That means to be direct. It means to be harsh. It means to be clinical. To say a cutting word. And Paul did not want to be like that with the Corinthian people. And this is very important because this is showing us that the general characteristic of ministry should be that it should not use sharpness. 
Now, before I go on to why that's important, I want to just say this, that even though Paul didn't want to use sharpness, it doesn't mean that there are times in the church and in the ministry where ministers, and I would say even all of us, have to be sharp with one another. The notion that we can't use sharpness when the Lord um, leads us to do that is absolute nonsense. And it's nonsense because Jesus, listen, he used a righteous sharpness in his ministry. Do you remember when he went into the temple and he drove out all the money changers? Jesus was not being uh, a quiet dove at that time. He had a whip, you know, he had a cord. He was, he was being sharp. Do you remember in the Gospels when the Pharisees said to Jesus, Lord, is it right for us to pay taxes? And Jesus said to them, whose inscription is on the coin? And they said, Caesar's. Well, he says, render to Caesar what is Caesar's and render to God what is God's. And they couldn't answer him. He was clear, he was direct, and I believe he used sharpness there. So that, listen, there's a time and a place for sharpness to be used in the ministry. But the overall um, characteristic of ministry is it should not be sharpness. And the reason why that is, is because the overwhelming character of Jesus' ministry was that he was gentle, he was lowly of heart, he was gracious, he was kind, he was loving. And that is best shown in his relationship with the disciples. I mean, do do you ever get sort of um, slightly annoyed at the disciples? I mean, they just seem like a really odd bunch of guys who made loads, loads of mistakes. And you think, oh, if I was Jesus, I would just have been like, I've had enough of you guys. But what does Jesus do? He doesn't do that. Time after time, he's patient with them. He's loving, he's gracious, he's gentle. And because of that, the Spirit of Christ anointed Paul to write to Timothy that church ministers should have that same quality. Listen to what he says in 1 Timothy 3. He says there, A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior, hospitable, able to teach, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not covetous. And then in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 24, he says, And a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient. Why is this? Why does a minister have to be this way? Well, it's quite simple. When you are gentle with people, you are much more likely to draw them to Jesus. Whether it's for the first time that they hear about Jesus or it's someone who's fallen into sin, if you are gentle with them, you are more likely to draw them to Christ. In Proverbs 15, verse 1, the writer says that a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. You know, when we're sharing the gospel with people, we need to tell them the truth We need to tell them about their sin. We need to tell them about Jesus being their saviour. But we must do it in a gentle way, I believe. And not in a harsh way. 
Because when we do that, it just stirs up anger. And we don't want to make unbelievers angry necessarily. We want them to come to Jesus. So we must be prepared, brothers and sisters, to be gentle with people and tell them the truth very clearly. But then in the case of a believer who's fallen into sin, it says in Galatians 6 verse 1, Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. And so this is the reality that sometimes brothers and sisters, they fall into sin, they get themselves into a mess, and those who are spiritual, whether they're a, a, a pastor or not, they must seek to restore them in a spirit of gentleness. Why? Because if you're harsh with someone like that, their heart will just get harder. And they'll go further and further away from Jesus. And that's not what we want. We want those who have fallen into sin to come back to a restored relationship with the Lord. And it has to be done in gentleness. And so with this spirit of gentleness, he then goes on in the second half of this verse to bring out the second concluding remark he makes about why he wrote this letter. And it's very simple. He says, I wrote this because the authority which was given to me by the Lord, I wrote this so that you could be edified or you could be built up rather than destroyed or torn down. This was the reason I wrote this, because I wanted you to be built up in the Lord. I wanted you not to be destroyed, but to be benefited and blessed. Paul got this heart, brothers and sisters, again from the Lord, because what do we learn from Jesus in the Gospels in Matthew 16? What did he say? He said, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Hallelujah. And how has Jesus been doing that over the last 2,000 years? Well, he's been building the church by adding people to it. People who've been getting saved. Jesus has been on a building project over the last 2,000 years. In 1 Peter 2, it talks about the fact that Jesus is building a spiritual house made of living stones. All of you in here this morning that are born again are living stones. We're connected to each other, and ultimately, we're connected to the chief cornerstone, who is Jesus Christ. And that spiritual house is being built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And Jesus knows exactly the number of people who will come into the church. He does know that. And he will continue to build the church this way until he comes back a second time. But then he's been building the church in another way. In Ephesians 4, it talks about the fact that the church needs to mature, to be fully grown, to be have a full stature in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what Jesus has been doing over the last 2,000 years by planting churches, by the gift of prophecy, by evangelism, by pastoring and teaching. He's been growing us in the knowledge of himself and in the unity of faith. And one day, the church will be perfect. It will be completely holy. It will be completely righteous. What a day that will be when there'll be no more disagreements about end times, about Calvinism, Armenianism. I mean, you could just raft off all these things. Bring that day, Lord, please. But the Lord is building the church this way. And because of that, every single church minister 
must have the same heart. They must have a heart to build the church in these two ways and to not destroy it. So we've seen in these first four verses, in this kind of atmosphere of the need to repent, Paul's concluding remarks is to emphasize the the need to not forget and the need to be built up, to be built up. Now, I want to just say that although church ministers have a, a role to play in building the church up, all of you have a role as well. Every single one of you in here is called of God to be involved in building the church. Our uh, church uh, really emphasizes the one another commandments. And one of them, which I think is up there, hopefully it is, is 1 Thessalonians 5.11, where it says, Therefore, comfort each other and edify or build one another just as you also are doing. Do you realize, brothers and sisters, that each one of you in here has a responsibility to be involved in building up your brothers and sisters in Christ? I mean, look around. You've been called to this fellowship to be involved in the people's lives here to build them up. It is not just my responsibility to do that or John's responsibility to do that. We're called to oversee that, but all of you are called to be involved in it. So let me ask you a question again. If you come along to this church on a regular basis, if this is your home church, are you involved in Jesus-centered, gospel-centered relationships where God has the ability to use you to build people up or for you to be built up by someone else? If you're not involved in relationships like this, can I ask you a very serious question? What are you doing? Do you just come along to this church to receive and to not give? Jesus said it's better to give than to receive. God has something much better for you, brother, sister, if you're in that position this morning where you're not, you don't have these relationships. The greatest blessing about being in the church is having gospel-centered, Jesus-centered relationships. That's the greatest thing. We need to grow in that. We need to be open to that more. And we need to be open to that to work in this spirit of gentleness, but to be open, to be sharp at times as well. Now, if any of you know me, you'll know that I have no problem with being sharp. I have no problem with being direct when required and saying things that other people don't want to say. Now, that has been used by God to make good decisions, but I've also seen it being used by the flesh to make bad decisions. And the problem for me is that I need to grow in gentleness. Because I have a tendency to be drawn to sharpness, I can sort of put people off. And people can feel like they can't approach me. So if I've ever done that to you, I'm sorry. But each one of you in here will have a tendency to be drawn to one of those two, I think. You'll either be drawn to being sharp or you'll either be drawn to being gentle. 
And for each one of those, that's good that you're drawn to that because the Spirit can use it, but you need to pray that the Lord can grow you in the other thing as well. Because if you're drawn to sharpness, as I said, people will not be drawn to you. You might cut people off. But if you're drawn to being too gentle, listen, you will not do things that you need to do sometimes. You will not say things. You'll let things go. You'll let things fester. You'll let sin kind of set in. And God wants us to have a balance in those two areas, brothers and sisters. So let's walk in that. So finally, our last section in verses 11 to 14. In this section, Paul is bringing concluding remarks about the hopes that he has for the Corinthian believers. And the first one is in verse 11. He says there, Finally, brethren, farewell. Become complete. Be of good comfort. Be of one mind. Live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Now, Paul, obviously, he's saying here, finally, uh, this is the last thing I'm going to say to you, and farewell. This is my goodbye to you in written form. And he then goes on and gives four very short exhortations to the Corinthian people. He says, become complete, which means to become mature. Be of good comfort, which means to be in comforting relationships together. Be of one mind, which means essentially to think the same thing. And live in peace, which is live in peace together. Now, what I want you to notice about these four exhortations is they're divided into two halves. The first two... When you read it in the Greek, the emphasis is that God is the only one that can do those two things for us. God is the only one that can lead the maturing process in our lives. God is the only one that supernaturally can draw us together in those gospel-centered, comforting relationships. And then the other two, where it says, be of one mind, live in peace, the emphasis in, in the Greek, listen, is that it's our responsibility to do that. We have to actively live that out. And so I think what Paul's doing here is he's saying that, look, when God has done this, when you know that God is doing this work of maturing you and developing those gospel relationships in your church, you then need to actively be of one mind and you need to actively live in peace. And he then ends the verse and says, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Now, I want you to note that he's speaking in the future tense there. He's talking about something in the future, where it says, we'll be with you. Now, that could mean two things. It could mean that because these guys had been in sin, and they'd been under the influence of false teachers, that their sense of fellowship with the Lord had grown cold, and that if they began to walk in the things that he talks about here, that um, they would sense him more, that the God of love and peace will be with you. They'll know that. Or it could mean the second coming of Christ, the actual physical return of the God of love and peace. Either way, I'm not exactly sure which one it is, but either way, it could be both. Either way, Paul is saying here that his hope for these people is that they grow in maturity, that they are becoming this church of holiness and righteousness once again. His second hope is in verses 12 and 13 where he says, Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. Now, 
Notice that he uses the word greet there twice. And that word means to be when you receive someone in friendship, when you uh, receive someone in conversation. And he talks in verse 12 about it locally in the local church. And then in verse 13, he speaks about the wider church. Now, he speaks about this holy kiss. Has anyone meditated upon that before and knows what it is? Uh, Anyway, that's the joke. Um, But what this probably was, was it was probably a cultural thing where they embraced each other with a kiss. A bit like how my Italian grandfather used to greet me. I'd go to his house and he'd see me from afar off and he'd say, Oh, Adam, come here. Come here. And he'd grab me and he'd go, Moi, moi, how Italians do. Whether that's what they did or not, I don't know. But they used to do this a lot every time they met, but they didn't do it on Good Friday. And they didn't do it on Good Friday because Judas betrayed Jesus with a kiss on Good Friday. And they thought that would be disrespectful. And this was actually common practice in England until about 800 years ago, when the Archbishop of York, in I think 1250, he said, no, we can't do this anymore, this is inappropriate. So he basically decided that he would form this kissing board where him and the priest would kiss it and it would then be passed around the congregation. So that's how they replaced it 800 years ago in England. But anyway, I don't think Paul is commanding us that we have to kiss each other every time we meet. But what I do think he's saying is that he wants us to be affectionate to one another as we greet each other. Now, this, I think, has real evangelical value to it. Um, Because we live in a society that is becoming more and more suspicious about relationships, is becoming more and more fearful about uh, every kind of relationship, really. And what God wants to do is he wants to use us as we greet each other and show affection in a spirit-filled way to draw people to say to them, look, you don't need to be worried about relationships. You can come to Jesus and have healthy, affectionate relationships with other people. So his hope here is that they have affectionate relationships. And then lastly, in verse 14, he says, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Now, this is what you would call a benediction. And this is basically where someone who had authority in the church would cast a blessing over a congregation. And this is what Paul's doing here with this statement. This is one of those verses that you could do a sermon on for an hour. There's so much stuff in here, but obviously we don't have the time, so I can't go through everything. But in essence, what Paul's hoping for is that they grow in the, in the reason why they were saved in the first place which is to have a relationship with the Trinity of the Godhead. To know the grace of Jesus Christ. To know the love of God and to know the communion or the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. This is what he's saying. And this is very fitting that he he ends with this here. Because this is, if you go back to 1 Corinthians and you read the first chapter, he kind of starts in the same way in chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians with kind of uh, references to their fellowship to Jesus, their fellowship and their relationship with God. So he starts with this and he ends with this. 
And what he's doing in that is he, is he is acknowledging that these people belong to God. Yes, they've had to deal with a lot of difficult things through these two books, but in the end, they belonged to God. And God will do absolutely everything for them to change them. He will do absolutely everything for them to take them to heaven. This is the emphasis that Paul is wanting to bring out here. That yes, they've gone through difficult things, but my God is stronger than that. He is able, even in the midst of their sin and their turning away through uh, submitting to false teachers, to change that situation so that they grow in their relationship with the Godhead. Now, for me, it is amazing that Paul ends this book with these three hopes. It's truly incredible. Remember, this guy, Paul, he really was a pastor that suffered. I mean, me and John moan to each other a lot of the time about how hard it is to pastor, but we, we have not experienced anything that Paul went through. He had it tough. He's written some really difficult things in 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, but yet here he is ending with hope. Because he knew the person that he believed in, Jesus Christ, he knew that God was able to do much, much more than he could think or ask through the power that was in Paul. So I want to ask you this morning, brothers and sisters, do you have that same hope about your life with Christ? Do you have hope in God that he is using every situation in your life to mature you in Christ? Do you have hope that he's using every situation to grow you in affectionate relationships with other Christians and in your relationship with the Godhead of Jesus, Jesus Christ, the Father and the Spirit? Do you have that hope? God does not want us, brothers and sisters, to mope around with our head down, discouraged, with the weight of the world on our shoulders. He wants us to have hope. What is hope in the New Testament? It is not some wishful thinking that something might happen. It is expectation that God, who's promised so much for each individual in Christ, will bring it about. And our experience of that, brothers and sisters, will be so much more if we just trust in him. Trust in him. If you belong to God in here this morning, if you've put your faith in Jesus Christ, trust that he is working for your good. He's not working to destroy you. He's working to build you up. And through your weakness, he wants to draw people to himself so his power can show in your life. Brothers and sisters, our society in the UK needs Christians that have hope. Seriously. Our society in the UK needs Christians that don't just wishfully think that they're going to get to heaven, but they're expecting it. Our society is hopeless. It really is. I see in my GP surgery time and time again people that are looking for answers, they're looking in the wrong places, and they have no hope at all. And he wants to use us to be hopeful people.
Because trust me, I really believe that one way that we're going to evangelize to people in this city, in this country, is being, just being hopeful. Things are getting worse if you don't sort of see that around you. They are. But we can have hope even in the midst of difficult circumstances. And God wants to use that to draw people to himself. We've seen today, brothers and sisters, three main areas where Paul was bringing these uh, remarks of conclusion. He's been wanting them to remember to not forget, to remember to build themselves up, and now to have hope. And I want to end this uh, series in 2 Corinthians, really, by encouraging us to remember what Paul said in these letters. To take on the calling that we have to be those who build each other up and also to have hope. If there's anyone in here today that doesn't know Jesus, doesn't know what I'm talking about, there's one thing that all human beings have in common and that is that they search for things that will give them hope, an expectation of a better future. And maybe you have searched for things in your life and you've just got nowhere. And you're more and more hopeless today than you were yesterday. But I have good news for you this morning. That the God of all hope, Jesus Christ, died for you on that cross. You may know today, I hope you know today, that you have fallen short of the glory of God. That you are a sinner. But in Jesus In his death, his resurrection, there's an eternal hope. The hope of glory. Commit your life to him today. Repent, turn from your sin. Put your faith in Jesus. And your life will be a life of hope from now on.